0: Spring is graduation season. It kicks off in May with prom, and you, friends of the kid's parents, start receiving graduation party invites. Save the date. Come to my kid's graduation party. And for the record, I love graduation parties. Good food, happy times, lots of positive energy. In June, graduating seniors don their cap and gown. They walk to receive their diploma. After commencement, The parties start, outdoor affairs with tents and games and barbecues, or summer food catered and served from a hotel pan, burgers, pulled pork or a pasta bar, salad and coleslaw and gallons of lemonade and iced tea, ice-laden buckets filled with soft drinks and cold beer, see some friends, eat some food, maybe play a game of cornhole or shoot some hoops after you've wished the graduate well. We had our first grad party of the season just two weeks ago. My friend's daughter, looking pretty and hopeful and wholesome in a summer dress, dispensing hugs and cheerfully greeting visitors with, thank you for coming to my party. She's headed off to Pennsylvania to attend college come August, and she's nervous and excited all at once. Seeing her, so happy, so cheerful, so full of life and hope for the future, I was reminded of another young graduate, someone who completed his studies at Algonac High School in the late spring of 1983, a young man named Sean Raymond. He was smart, handsome, kind, and brimming with potential. What he didn't know is that once he accepted his diploma, he had only weeks left to live. So come with me to a hot July day in 1983 when 19-year-old Sean Raymond headed out for a night in the city with friends and disappeared forever. Sean Raymond was that guy, and you probably remember someone a lot like him from your days in high school. The one guy who seemed to have it all. A good student, an athlete, nice looking, good-natured, friendly to nearly everyone. Sean was a varsity athlete competing in track and field, And when the senior class nominations came out, Sean was a shoe in for best looking. With his muscular frame, dark curly hair, and sparkling smile, his younger sister, Kit Raymond, sent me a photo of him at graduation. He's pictured with a girl he was friendly with. Dressed in his cap and gown, Sean is young and happy and handsome. It appears that everything good is waiting for him. And despite the bright smile that he was quick to share with others, Sean has a secret, something he initially shared only with his mother, Shirley. Sean, the handsome, smiling boy next door, is gay. Fearful of her response, he gathered the courage to tell his mother the news. And when he did, she embraced him, saying, quote, It's okay. I knew. I was waiting for you to tell me. In 1983 and even today, coming out to your family, it's a big deal. Sean's mother handled the news with kindness and empathy, offering her youngest son unconditional love and support. Sean's sexual orientation comes as a surprise to many who knew him because as a high schooler, he had girlfriends, lots of them. He was very popular and well liked, not just by high school girls, but according to his sister, Kit. All the women liked Sean, from the little old ladies at the store to his teachers and fellow students. He was just a good guy. During high school, Sean took a job at a popular local restaurant, Captain Two's. In the summer of 1983, he was working in the kitchen, manning the pizza station. And on Thursday, July 21st, Sean worked the dinner shift. He had plans when he was done working that night. His intention was to make the drive from Algonac to Detroit. He was going to go dancing, hang out with some of his new friends at Menjo's, a popular gay nightclub in the city. A couple of his co-workers from Captain Two said they would go with him that night, but they backed out and Sean went by himself. It's a 50-mile drive from Algonac to the bar on McNichols. To Sean, it was worth it. Menjo's was a safe place for the gay community. It was a place where you could be out and be yourself, a place to dance and drink and meet others. Now, I've never been to Menjo's, but I've only heard good things about it from those in the community. There were other gay bars in the city, but they had a seedier undertone. Menjo's opened in the 1970s, and today, it's more than a bar. It's also a shopping and entertainment complex. Back in the 1970s, Madonna, and yeah, that Madonna, she used to go dancing at Menjo's with a gay friend. Madonna would eventually be banned from the club for her outlandish behavior. Perhaps the openness and welcoming atmosphere Is what allowed Menjo's such longevity. When Sean Raymond left Algonac that night, he was driving his car, a 1981 Chevy Citation. The Chevy was two-toned, gray over burgundy, and I imagine him listening to something on the tape deck, happily headed to Detroit to see friends. I wonder if his little car had air conditioning. It was a hot summer night; daytime temps were near 90 degrees. Sean arrived at Menjo's around 11:30. He stayed for a bit, then went over to another bar, Tiffany's. He would return to Menjo's about 1 a.m., and he was last seen in the parking lot outside Menjo's around 2:30 a.m., which is just after closing time. His friends would tell police that as they parted ways, Sean said he was headed back to his home in Algonac. There isn't much information made public about what Sean did when he got to Menjo's or the names of the people he hung out with that night. These things were not shared with the public. What we do know is that Sean never made it home. He wasn't in Algonac on Friday, and he wasn't back on Saturday either. Late Saturday afternoon, his mother was worried. At the urging of her older daughter, Shirley placed a call to the Clay Township police, who suggested that she contact Detroit police. Detroit police told Mrs. Raymond, quote, He's experimenting. He'll be back. Neither department was willing to take a report on her missing son. They wanted her to wait 24 hours. She told them Sean was last seen on Thursday night, and it didn't matter. She had to wait. Meanwhile, mom and little sister Kit are alone in the house in Algonac. Sean was the youngest boy of five children. His older siblings were all grown and flown, married, living independently. Sean's parents divorced a few years earlier, and mom raised Sean and Kit in a modest home. They didn't have a lot of money, but the trio was happy. And when I spoke to Kit, she told me that Sean was a wonderful big brother. He let her tag along, he watched out for her, he was kind and loving toward his younger sister. She shared with me a story from the day of his graduation. Sean was in his room, listening to music and getting ready for commencement. Trying to get his dark curly hair to settle down and sit nicely beneath the mortarboard he'd wear that day. Kit was feeling emotional about her big brother being all grown up. She went to his room and slipped a congratulatory card under the door for him. Moments later, the door to his room opened. Sean was holding the card and smiling. Come here, he said, and he hugged Kit, who started to cry. Sean held her a little tighter. Aw, come on. I'm just graduating. I'm not going anywhere. One month later, Sean would vanish completely. When Kit relayed this story to me, she said she will never forget the song that was playing in the background, a top 40 hit from a British band, The Police. The song was Every Breath You Take, and the lyrics bring her some comfort even today that Sean is still around watching over her. In 1983, Algonac was a small waterfront town sitting on the south end of St. Clair County. It's closer to Port Huron and the Blue Water Bridge than it is to Detroit. With a population of 4,400 in 1980, it's your typical small town. And what I'm trying to say is that Algonac may not have been the most tolerant or welcoming place for a teenager to come out. To be honest, Detroit probably wasn't the best place either not in 1983. But Sean went about his life working, registering for college, and enjoying nightlife in the big city when his schedule allowed. While Sean lived at home with his mom and sister, he worked and used some of that money to have a phone line installed in his bedroom. This meant that Sean had his own line, his own number, and his own phone bill. With Sean missing, his mother, Shirley, wanted to check in with all of his friends, but she knew she didn't have the names or numbers for them. So when his phone bill arrived in August, Shirley sat down and started dialing, asking every person her son had called before his disappearance if they'd seen him. If they knew where he could be, no one had answers. Everything led back to that last night at Menjo's and who Sean might have left with. When Clay Township Police took the missing person's report from Shirley Raymond, some of the officers knew Sean. If they didn't already know the Raymond family from living in the same small town, Then they knew him from his work at Captain Two's. Looking at Sean's life, that he was loved and accepted by his family, that he had a job and plans for college, courses that he'd registered for, it seemed less likely that he chose to abandon his loved ones and set out on his own. Police interviewed the man that Sean was with at Menjo's before he disappeared. This man told police he didn't know anything about Sean's disappearance that the last time he saw Sean was in the parking lot around 2:30 in the morning. When police came back to him another time with more questions, wanting more information, he offered them contact information for his lawyer. He was done cooperating. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something holding you back from achieving your goals? BetterHelp online counseling offers licensed professional counselors specialists in issues like depression, anxiety, relationships, and more. Connect with your BetterHelp counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and using BetterHelp is so convenient. Access the support you need at your own time and pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your counselor. Chat and text options are also available. If you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one. Best of all, BetterHelp is affordable. Listeners have already gone. Get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. Get started today. Visit betterhelp.com gone and complete a questionnaire to be matched with a counselor. Start feeling better now. Visit betterhelp.com gone for 10% off your first month. Listeners, be sure to check out this month's sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash gone and use code gone for 10% off your first month. In the 70s and 80s, many viewed people in the gay community as suspect simply because they were different. Their sexuality made them other, and they were often harassed or targeted when crimes were committed. When Sean's friends and acquaintances from Menjo's were brought in, Many of them were extremely wary of law enforcement, which made them less likely to open up, cooperate, or otherwise make themselves vulnerable. While some did speak candidly with police, or offered to take a polygraph, others were hesitant to say anything and open themselves up to scrutiny. Without tips and leads, there's not much to go on. Sean and his vehicle, the two-tone Chevy Citation, they're gone, vanished completely. That both he and the car are missing made the family wonder if maybe he did set out on his own. Maybe he was looking to start over somewhere new. By the end of the summer, Sean's case is at a standstill. In the fall, Kit returned to school, Algonac High, the hallways where she used to catch sight of her big brother. Her friends and fellow students were mostly kind and supportive. But once in a while, she'd be asked, quote, Did they find his body yet? It was heart-wrenching, and Kit weathered it the best that she could. Kit, her siblings, and her parents carried on without Sean. The idea that he'd left, that he found a better life for himself away from the community he'd grown up in, away from his mom and sister, it wasn't an easy thing to accept. But it was better to believe that Sean was living somewhere warm and sunny, surrounded by friends and love and laughter, than it was to accept the alternative. And his family would hope in their heart of hearts that it was true, that Sean was out there somewhere. And that hope, it would persist until 2004. But before we can get to 2004, we have a trip to take. To 1992. Sean Raymond's been gone for nine long years, leaving a wound in his family an open space that was once filled by his kindness and his smile. We are in Macomb County, near the Clinton River. And because the river runs along the southern edge of Selfridge Air Force Base, the military is partially responsible for care of the river. And if any of this sounds familiar, we were just here. Connie Royce, whose disappearance on June 1st, 1990, was discussed in episode 112 back in March of 2019. You may recall that divers searched the Clinton River looking for her remains. So, it's September of 1992, and the river needs to be dredged. It's a pricey project, and the work churns up the sides and bottom of the river. One of the dredge operators notices something that he thinks is, quote, a big mushroom. So he pauses his work to clear it, but it's not a mushroom. It's a human skull. The remains are turned over to the Macomb County Sheriff's Department, and if you're thinking, hey, let's run some DNA on that skull, it wasn't an option, not with the technology available in 1992. Dental records aren't going to be much help either because they're not yet in a computerized database. In order to compare dental records, you need a name so a manual comparison can be made. When the skull was found, the river is searched again for other bones or evidence related to the skull, but nothing was found, just the skull of an unknown person. The skull is determined to be male, an adult male, and it's inventoried and placed on a shelf somewhere. And it will sit on that shelf for a decade until a Michigan State trooper and forensic artist, Sarah Krebs, picks it up. She wants to reconstruct it to see if a name can be connected. In 2004, Krebs was one of only 5 forensic artists working for Michigan State Police. And at the time, she was stationed at the Richmond post, and in between her road duties, she spent time recreating a face for the skull. She worked on him, spending a bit of time with him almost every day. Krebs nicknamed the skull Harry, and coworkers would look in to see how she was progressing. Now remember, the skull was located in Mount Clemens, which is in Macomb County, just 28 miles as the crow flies from his home in Algonac, in St. Clair County. Harry, as Krebs called the skull, was entered into the only crime database available at the time, the NCIC, which was run by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The case of Sean Raymond was also entered into NCIC, but somehow a connection was never made between Harry and the missing teenager. Another factor that delayed Sean's identification is that when the skull was found, Dr. Werner Spitz, the medical examiner, theorized that it had been in the water no more than five years, and it belonged to an adult male. In 1992, they pulled records going back five years, which meant that Sean's missing persons case from 1983 was not taken into consideration. While she worked on him, Krebs noticed something interesting about Harry. His teeth were in excellent condition. He'd clearly benefited from expensive orthodontics, closing a gap between his teeth. This told her something about Harry. This was someone who came from a family with some means. Orthodontics are expensive. If his family didn't have money, they had access to a very good dental plan. And as her work neared completion, one of her co-workers made a remark. He said that a guy that he knew from Algonac, a guy he'd worked with at Captain Two's, well, Harry sort of reminded him of that guy. And listeners, despite the skull being shown in the Detroit newspapers, this tip from one of Krebs' co-workers was the only one that came in on the case. The good news is, it gave her a name to compare her work to, Sean Raymond. It was Sergeant Tim Brown he was the one that said the skull reminded him of Sean. Not only had Brown been a Clay Township officer when Sean went missing, they'd worked together at Captain Two's. Sean was the only person he knew from his civilian life that was missing, and something about the reconstruction, maybe the nose, reminded him of Sean. So Krebs followed up with Clay Township police to ask about Sean Raymond. Krebs was pleasantly surprised to see that the file was active and easily accessible. She took his dental records and went looking for his dentist. Sadly, this was a dead end. In the two decades that he'd been missing, Sean's dentist died, and his widow got rid of records from his practice. The next stop was at Sean's orthodontist. This was a good lead. Not only was the orthodontist still around, he still had an active practice in Port Huron. He was able to confirm that Harry's teeth were a match to Sean Raymond. Amazing news. An unidentified skull, something that sat on a shelf waiting for someone to take an interest. It suddenly belonged to a person, to a family, to people that were looking for him. But then comes the hard part telling the Raymonds that their son and brother was no longer a missing person, that he'd been discovered in 1992, and it took all these years to figure out that a skull sitting among the unidentified remains belonged to the handsome and popular 19-year-old that they last saw in 1983. Two decades after Sean Raymond went to Detroit, he was back home. The news was devastating to his family. It was like losing him all over again. The thoughts that they'd harbored of him happily living his life, those were destroyed. Sean hadn't started a new life in California. Sean was dead likely killed in the small hours of a Friday morning in July of 1983. Now law enforcement has a murder case and only a skull, a list of phone numbers from Sean's old phone bill that his mother surely called all those years ago, and a missing vehicle. There's no body, there's no cause of death, nothing to shed light on what happened after he left Benjo's. Many of the original witnesses had to be tracked down. People move around a lot over two decades. As police looked again for Sean's car, the two-toned Chevy Citation, they found something interesting. At some point, Detroit police ran his VIN, or vehicle identification number, and when they spoke to the officer who'd run it years earlier, he couldn't give them any information. Part of his job was to run VINs. The information on Sean's vehicle was probably one of a dozen that he'd run that week alone. He told them that he couldn't be certain but maybe the VIN had something to do with Canada, but again, he wasn't sure. This was another frustrating dead end. When the Raymond family was notified that the remains did belong to Sean, they didn't understand. How could he have sat in a box on a shelf for all these years? Why wasn't he identified sooner? Trooper Krebs sat down and wrote a letter to Kit and Shirley, Sean's sister and mother, and in the letter, she outlined the course of Sean's remains the months of work she'd performed to build a face for the skull, and how the one and only tip they received ended up being the only tip they needed. The explanation from the trooper helped his family feel at ease, and the Raymond family has stayed in touch with Krebs, even coming from out of state to the Detroit area so they could participate in the first ever Missing in Michigan conference. So on Saturday, July tenth, two 2004, Almost twenty one years after he vanished, a memorial service is held for Sean at Saint Andrew's Episcopal Church in Algonac. His memorial was crowded with friends, family, and those who wanted to show their support. Sean's disappearance and death were tragic and painful and difficult for his friends and family. But one good thing to come out of Sean's case is that it set a path for Michigan State trooper Sarah Krebs. It was early in her career when she connected the remains to a missing man and brought him home to his family. This changed the course of her work and led to the creation of the Missing in Michigan organization. One of the goals of Missing in Michigan is to support law enforcement in locating missing people, as well as providing support to the families who have missing loved ones. I am proud to be a civilian volunteer with Missing in Michigan, and I am proud of the work that we do every day to help families bring home the missing. And give names to the unidentified. In researching this case, I learned a great deal about how unidentified remains are handled. Unidentified remains don't fall under the umbrella of law enforcement. They're under the jurisdiction of the medical examiner's office. This can vary by county, but it's possible that law enforcement may not know that there are unidentified remains waiting, even though the department has a missing persons case that's open. This is a gap that must be bridged. NAMUS, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, which can be found at namus.gov, that's N-A-M-U-S.gov, was created not long after the Michigan State Police, through the work of Trooper Krebs, brought Sean back to his family. In 2007, an unidentified persons database was launched. In 2008, the missing persons database was launched. One of the issues is that departments don't always have the time, the means, or the manpower to enter cases into the database, especially if you have a larger city with several or dozens or even hundreds of cases that need to be logged. In 2009, the two existing databases were connected to more easily link related cases. In 2016, the first iteration of the NamUs database that the public can access went live. In 2018, it was updated. This allows for easier tracking of cases, assuming that the missing person or unidentified remains have been entered into the system. If law enforcement in St. Clair County were made aware of human remains found in Macomb County, Sean may have been able to come home much sooner, but we know for certain that the memories of witnesses would be fresher. It would make the circumstances of his death easier to resolve. Because only part of Sean's remains were recovered, his case continues to be considered that of a missing person, and the investigation into his death is open and ongoing. If you were at Menjo's that hot July night in 1983 and you know what happened to Sean Raymond, his younger sister, Kit, has a message for you.
1: I have no doubt in my mind that the people that are responsible for this are still out there walking around, I know there's people out there that know more than what they've said. There's people that said they were his so-called friends that did not help him. And I just, I know there's people out there that know more than they say. I hope that it has weighed heavily on their hearts all of these years. I've said in other interviews before, after they found Sean Skull and then, you know, they identified him and everything, I've had numerous people tell me, oh, well, there you go. Now you guys have a closure. There is nothing about that that is closure. Yes, we know he's never coming home, but that is not closure. And for my mom to have to live with that, it, it just brought up so many more questions for her. And, um, you know, he was my my big brother. He was everything.
0: If you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can email me, host, at AlreadyGonePodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at AlreadyGonePod. If you'd like to discuss the cases we cover here, we have a Facebook group, the Already Gone Podcast Discussion Group. If you are in Michigan and would like to learn more about the missing or how you can help, please visit Missing in Michigan on Facebook. You can also follow Missing in Michigan on Twitter and on Instagram. This episode is dedicated to the memory of my good friend and mentor at Missing in Michigan, Mary Cross. Mary died unexpectedly on June 1st, 2019 after a short illness. She was a great friend to so many in the missing community and a vital part of our work at Missing in Michigan. She is loved and missed by all who knew her. Godspeed, Mary. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.